Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. The most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector. Dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders, also a successful author. His books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining me uh, today. As the announcer said, you can call in today at 347-324-3080. Make sure you hit the pound button so you raise your hand on the switchboard to let me know you would like to ask a question of our page two expert. And today I have with me Lilia Wagner, who is going to be sharing uh, information and insights into diversity and philanthropy. I'll share a little bit more about that uh, with you in just a few seconds. You can also join me over in the chat room. Um, I see a few people over in the chat room. You can ask questions there, or feel free to email me today at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. First up here on the nonprofit coach in the uh, chat room here, we have our page uh, one news. Kinga Ile is here with us, and she's the director of programs and strategic initiatives at CAF America. And apropos to our discussion about global philanthropy today, uh, Kinga is here to share with us some important information uh, regarding a new symposium, which is going to be held next month at the United Nations. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach. Kinga Eli. Thank you, Ted. Indeed, we have an exciting event coming up in June 15 and 16 in New York. It's going to take place at the United Nations uh, headquarters, and it is uh, a, the 2016 International Grant-Making Symposium. Uh, the event is presented by CAF America in a partnership with UNDP. And in uh, this, uh, this session, you said that that's a two-day session, June 15th uh, and 16th. What are some of the topics? Why would someone want to attend the International Grant-Making Symposium? That's a good question, Ted. Uh, we intend this uh, symposium to be a two-day educational training, and we expect nonprofits, family foundations, corporate foundations, and corporations who are interested in international grant-making to join us because we are going to explore uh, the critical role of the international grant-making in achieving the global progress towards uh, the SDGs. And within this context, we're going to discuss very um, critical information to any international grant-maker 
we're going to discuss in detail rules and regulations, uh, uh, regulations around ED and ER. We're going to discuss the mechanisms for international grant making, how to take strategic action, and we're going to also debate some of the um, um, solutions which are um, available for giving to challenging markets, and we're going to address uh, anti-money laundering constraints on international grant making, just to name a few. Some of these speakers are really quite impressive. You have speakers from the Ford Foundation, Pixera Global, True Impact, the Global Fund for Women. Uh, CAF America is a partner, and you mentioned uh, a moment ago the SDGs or the Sustainable Development Goals, and CAF America is a partner in the SDG philanthropy platform. Why is that important, and why would that uh, draw someone to the International Grant Making Symposium? Um, well, Ted, as we know, uh, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, were just passed in uh, last year in September, and they entered into force at the beginning of this year. And they basically set uh, the platform for the next 15 years of common, the world's common goals. Of course, philanthropy as a sector is going to be a very important participant in um, working towards achieving these goals. So uh, with international grant making at the base of any philanthropic action, we thought that this year's international grant making symposium should address these questions within the context of, context of the SDGs. So we're looking forward to diving into this topic from the context of the SDGs. This is a very impressive and timely uh, symposium. How can my listeners register for the International Grant Making Symposium if they would like to attend? Of course. Uh, registering is very simple. You just go to cafamerica.org. Uh, under Programs, we have our IGS page. The link for that is cafamerica.org slash, slash IGS and you'll find the register button right there on the top of the page. And uh, I see that uh, there's also information about the IGS, including uh, the schedule at a glance, so lots of information available online. Uh, Kinga Ila is joining us from CAF America as the Director of Programs and Strategic Initiatives. Thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Of course. Thank you. Uh, so, as Kinga mentioned, I do want to just draw attention to the website CAF America, that's C-A-F as in Frank, america.org forward slash I-G-S, which stands for International Grant Making Symposium. Uh, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach is our page to expert. Lilia Wagner is the Director of Philanthropic Services for Institutions, a trainer for the Fundraising School, as well as on Philanthropic Studies faculty of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. And she also teaches in the graduate program at St. Mary's University in Minnesota. Her published books, including Careers in Fundraiser, Fundraising, uh, which was the winner of the Skystone Ryan Research Prize presented by the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and leading up the transformational leadership for fundraisers. She's also had several books published in other areas of, of interest, including the topic of our uh, session here today, which is a terrific new book entitled Diversity and Philanthropy, Expanding the Circle of Giving. And a real thrill for me, uh, which I don't often get, is that uh, Lily is actually here in the studio with me. Uh, so we get a chance to uh, not only chat today, but see each other, talk uh, with each other. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the conversation and welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach Lily Wagner. Thank you, Ted. It's a real privilege to be here with you. Uh, you have uh, an extensive background in international fundraising and in cultural uh, diversity. Where does that come from? How, how does that stem to your expertise? Well, I'm glad you asked that because one might say that I was born into this topic. I was born in Estonia 
And fortunately, a lot of people in America finally know what Estonia is because just on the way here, I was reading that Estonia is the leading country for technology. And of course, no session can go by without me stating that we invented Skype. Okay. I think we sold it to an American company. Yeah, I think it's sold a few times, but it's still a great product. <laughs> and so I, I was born in Estonia, the various cultures in my background, uh, but I was a refugee child, homeless in Germany, trying to flee communism. Finally got to America, wasn't here very long. And then my family was sent to South America, so I grew up among Spanish-speaking people, both here and in the bad part of Brooklyn, New York, until I went to college in Massachusetts. So very early on, I was subjected to, very nicely, to several kinds of influences. One, of course, was the various cultural aspects, but along with that was also the matter of generosity. Even though I was just a tiny kid when we were refugees, I still remember the generosity of people. Uh, strangers, giving to strangers. And then, of course, living among uh, Spanish-speaking people for quite a while, seeing some of the traditions of generosity, the giving spirit. So in response to your question, this was something that I literally did grow up with. And the more I got into the fundraising profession, and the more I had the conviction that philanthropy really is a matter of inclusivity, when we don't take into account these uh, factors that are the impulses for our generosity, whatever we want to call philanthropy in other cultures, we're missing the boat, really. Mm -hmm. And we are not giving people the chance to be part of something bigger than they are themselves. Mm -hmm. So thank you for asking that, because yeah. it is an exciting part of my background. Well, I think it's important, and certainly um, serving as the CEO here at uh, CAF America Donor Advice Funds, our expertise is in international. Uh, and I think you know, one of the, the, the themes that I, I got from reading your book um, is that all philanthropists don't look like you and me. Um, philanthropists come from all over the world, and they bring their own cultural um, interests uh, to their philanthropy. You open up your book um, with an interesting statement that I wondered if you would um, respond to and, and sort of expand upon. Individuals and cultures, you say, uh, may have varying motives and methods of giving. However, they share a belief in using their resources and skills to benefit the public good. Um, is benefiting the public good, is giving universal? Is it a human trait? I believe it is, because as I've interacted, uh, thanks largely in part to my long-time association with the School of Philanthropy and being sent globally, but also a lot of the other aspects of my work, as I observe people in starting with the people in the Andes when I was growing up, but also uh, people in Kenya. One of my early stints in working overseas was in Israel, another was in Kiev, in Ukraine, was in New Zealand and Australia several times. And as I observed this motivation, uh, people, one of the reasons that people give in the United States when we track through research why do people give is to make a difference. And I found it very interesting, no matter where I've taught or for whatever group, when we go through the exercise of why do people give, why don't they give, why don't they like to ask, uh, one of the leading motivations is to make a difference. To make a and difference. And it cuts across many cultures. How it exhibits itself is very different. But that motivation, I find from my experience and also many researchers, it's quite universal. Quite universal. And what's really terrific about uh, about this book, uh, Diversity and Philanthropy, and we're going to, throughout the, this show, we're going to be able to look at those various cultures and learn um, a, a little bit about what makes them unique, what makes their philanthropy um, uh, focused on the culture that they come from,
And why is that important for our audience to understand that as um, uh, fundraisers, as uh, nonprofit managers um, in a global world, uh, it's important to understand that everyone doesn't look just like you, but they bring their own richness um, to the discussion. Uh, I think throughout the session I'm going to quote you because you're always so brilliant in what you, what you say. Um, in, 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 your, in your book here, you also uh, make uh, note of a, a very uh, uh, noted um, philanthropist, um, and that's Mario Marino, uh, chairman of Venture Philanthropy Partners, uh, a philanthropic fund uh, here in Washington, D.C. And he said something that I, that, that I think you found to be important, important enough to put in your book uh, anyway, um, that he says the, the new generation of philanthropists see themselves as citizens of the world. Um, that says to me that um, just giving to one culture, just giving within your own country, um, is a bit of a notion of the past, and that having empathy and seeing need around the globe is becoming as natural as supporting your local soup kitchen or your local house of worship. Um, do you see that? Is, that? is that an important trend? that my listeners should be aware of? I think there are a couple of angles to that particular point. One is that I began to see, because I was a um, college and university professor at one time, and I began to see in the early 90s how young people began to be more interested in their communities and making a difference. And of course, with the advent of the Internet, uh, when I say advent, I don't mean the very beginning, but when it became available to the public, uh, that certainly caused our young people, from the time they were little, mm -hmm. to understand the global aspects of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I know in the early days, sometimes my organizations would lose donations, my American organizations would lose donations because people wanted to give to the emerging countries from the Soviet Union era. Mm -hmm. I know that was part of my giving, being able to go back and give to my country. Mm -hmm. But then certainly the growth of technology, and I remember when I was working for an international development organization right here in Washington, there was a school or a couple of schools in Chicago that had sister schools in Jordan. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of that was facilitated by the growing awareness on the part of our young people that it really is, to use an old cliche, a global village. Mm -hmm. But I think it's been beneficial from both sides, from the young people today, and these young people mature very quickly and they take mm -hmm. those attitudes with them, but also our partner countries and also realizing that uh, generosity, like we already said, exists there too. Uh, so another angle to this is also the giving across borders. The Chronicle of Philanthropy has been very good in documenting and covering some of those points where donors in India might prefer to give to some of the Washington, D.C. organizations, right. and vice versa. One of my possible donors in Nebraska chose to give to Russia. So thanks, of course, this is your area of expertise, right. but the social media, I believe, really has fostered the growth of philanthropy, and we need to keep up with an awareness of these cultures so that we can include people more as givers, as donors. Mm -hmm not just recipients, mm -hmm. as we sometimes perceive them. Right. One of the, the concepts that we discuss often here on The Nonprofit Coach is, is one that, that I've sort of promoted, um, which is um, the notion of what I call you philanthropy, which is me philanthropy, my philanthropy. Uh, and that I, I envision uh, a future, and I think we're seeing the trends right now, where uh, philanthropists are, are far less interested in brand name charities or, or giving to sort of big box charities, um, but they want to have impact. They want to make sure that their money is being used for very specific purposes. And I think the Internet does give them the ability to look across borders and to say, you know, I, I not only want to, but I know that I can make a difference in this community. And that's been part of the success of CAF America is that we've grown 55% in the last year and 140 
33% in the last four years. And part of that is this trend of donors coming to us and saying, you know, I want to give on the ground in Uganda. I want to give, you know, a very specific gift in the Philippines. Um, and I want to support that charity in the Philippines. And uh, what CAF America does is all there's obviously a lot of regulations if you want to also earn a tax deduction uh, for moving money internationally, and that's entirely possible. Uh, it's the work that CAF America does. Uh, we had Kinga Ila on earlier, and she mentioned the International Grant Making Symposium. Part of that is going to be a tutorial on equivalency determination and expense responsibility, which are the two protocols the IRS has provided us that allow for a tax deduction to be made and support charities anywhere in the world. Um, it's complicated, but not impossible. And I think the concept that you've brought up here of uh, global citizens and people who have the empathy and the desire and the ability uh, to support across borders uh, need a framework to do that, and that's part of what, what CAF America can, can provide. Um, in uh, in your, your book, you go on to uh, mention uh, the importance of, of uh, giving in, in various uh, cultures. Um, we're going to take a very quick break here. When we come back, I want to start talking um, specifically about some of the, uh, the cultures that you've outlined uh, in your book, and we'll be right back. Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And I've always found it helpful to have the microphone on when I share updates about my schedule. Uh, so I'm going to share with you that next Tuesday here on The Nonprofit Coach, uh, we will have Judge Snyderman, who is the president of Tapped Mobile, as our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. We are now uh, back here live with Lilia Wagner. And Lilia, before we get into um, some of the, the insights that you have into some of the various cultures, sort of across the board here um, are the notions of accountability and outcomes. How does that factor into not only this terrific book, but your notion of where philanthropy is today? Well, two of the uh, most critical factors in fundraising today is that people prefer to give to outcomes, not just because we have a need. They want to know what happens with their money. 
And that, of course, leads into the second factor, which is so important, and that's the accountability. Now, this is not the time or place to go into all the reasons why we demand accountability, but it certainly is why people have always wanted to know what happens with their money. It's more important today than ever. Now, this is what's interesting, too, is that with the dawn of our global world, with the Internet and all our social media, that both of these are in greater demand, but also easier to fulfill if we're inclined to do so as responsible fundraisers and nonprofits. And it also puts together two of the factors that I talk about in this book. And one is our roots. And how do those roots still continue in one way or another to shape what we currently do with philanthropy across and within cultures. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is one of the wonderful things about America, which is my adopted country. And having uh, had the privilege of when I came over here, we we were poor as church mice, which fits because my father was a pastor. And uh, it was really through the generosity of Americans that I experienced some of this early Mm -hmm. philanthropy, so to speak. So I think a combination of roots and what's currently happening is valuable for both a practitioner but also an enriching part of our mm-hmm. our United States and Canada. This book covers much territory, isn't it? Just it United. sure does. You you cover the entire globe. So I want I want to first of all encourage folks um, to find diversity and philanthropy by Dr. Lilia Wagner. You can find that on Amazon. You should have a copy of this in your library. Um, now, Lilia, I'm going to just highlight some of the things that I've read so we can try to cover as many of the cultures as possible. We only have 30 minutes left. These shows always go far too fast. I'm going to pull something out and ask you to respond um, to it, but I want to give you permission to go a little bit deeper, to go wherever you'd like to in each of the the cultures, but I'm going to pull you back and get into the next culture so we can try to cover as many of these as we can. Um, In your book, you start off um, sort of the the first area uh, of the world or the first um, culture that, that you speak of is that of the Hispanic culture. Um, And you make note of, uh, as it says here, remittances or the act of giving back to uh, the country of origin is a major way of giving uh, in the Hispanic culture. Can you tell us what are remittances and why why is the Hispanic culture uh, focused on that form of giving? Remittances are giving back to your country of origin And, well, many populations do that. From my research and the experts that I've included, the many number of experts, uh, that appears to be a very comfortable way for Hispanics to give back to their families, to their own country. Mm -hmm. And remittances really is this act of sending some of your money from the United States Mm -hmm. or Canada back to your country of origin. If Many of your relatives are here, and many of the other cultures see family as a much wider circle. I know when I did work with refugees in the refugee camps of Thailand, this matter of fictive kin, the extended family, as people were brought after the Cambodian Holocaust to the United States, that was a very good example of the extended family that many cultures have. And And hang on to and hang on to. And Hispanics in particular have that loyalty, and therefore the generosity is expressed in remittances. And we don't always count that as philanthropy, but it's generosity. It's generosity, exactly. And I want to draw a distinction there. It's not It's not uh, tax-deductible philanthropy. It doesn't fit within an IRS uh, code definition of philanthropy, but nonetheless is giving. Uh, and is giving of your resources to help others. So it certainly fits the topic of your conversation. Let's move on to, if we can, oh, you, something can else. Can I interject on, yeah. something before we go into more of these cultures? What I have done in this book is pulled together every possible resource that I could find. And, of course, having spoken about the Internet, you know, that helped. And also, like in the U.K., There were some very significant books being written, for example, Teresa Lloyd. And uh, what I have done is pulled together our best knowledge, our best research, best practice, 
and put that into chapters so that we can see what are the main characteristics. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd like to equate that with personality tests, and many of your listeners, no doubt, have done either the Myers-Briggs or the DISC type, which are the two most credible. Now, I happen to be a very much an ENTJ, but when you read the description of an ENTJ, I don't always fit. Mm -hmm. Well, I think people should read this book with that in mind. We're picking out the best knowledge we have about generosity right. in a particular culture or even sometimes subculture. And somebody might read this and say, well, I know somebody who doesn't fit this. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the best characteristics that this is based in good research and experience. Yeah. So I wanted to give that I, I'm, caveat. I'm glad that you, that you brought that up because I, I certainly read your book with that in mind. I think that others should read this book in with that in mind. That This is sort of the, the macro view of each of the, the various cultures. Um, and it's a great place to start if you're trying to learn about a culture, but understanding the specific philanthropists that you're talking to and the specific communities that you're, that you're interacting with would be a wise way to approach that. So this is a starting point, but not necessarily the, the ending point. Like prospect research, early in my time, well, not so early, but I got, was the head of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at mm -hmm. Indiana University. And we can't look at all women givers and say they all will do this, they all will do that. But certain characteristics emerge, and that gives us a basis on which to build for more specificity in groups. Then we go to the individual donors, and that's, I think, one of the values mm -hmm. of the book. I certainly feel that it's one of the values. Let's move on to uh, the African culture, and um, the church has been a major focus of African-American philanthropy, both as a recipient of generosity and as a conduit to other organizations, such as those who feed the hungry and care for the homeless. That, that certainly sounds like a, a, a different avenue of philanthropy, so talk to us a little bit about African philanthropy. I think some of the richness of African-American philanthropy can't be appreciated until we look at some specific countries in the, on the continent of Africa. Uh, some of the factors that they share across borders of this country, and unfortunately, many people talk about Africa as a country. As if it were a country, exactly. It, it's it a very diverse continent. 50-plus countries, I right. believe. And some of the factors that crossed borders and came to America, we saw exhibited in uh, sometimes unrecorded ways, but even during the days of slavery, mm -hmm. helping each other, the uh, matter of many different cultures being lumped together perhaps on a plantation that sharing across country borders even took place way back then. Mm -hmm. Now the church is very important in uh, the giving of the African-American culture as well as causes that build up the race as is noted in the book. However, church also, I should note, has had a major factor, for example, in Latin American culture where giving to the Catholic Church, which was virtually a mandate, also morphed into the privilege of being generous because, you know, giving is developing a habit of right, giving, a right. habit of generosity. And it's very much in, embedded in these cultures. Um, it, is, right. it is part of the, the culture itself. Um, keeping um, eye on the time and wanting to cover all of your topics here, uh, which is part of my job, uh, is moving on to Asians and Pacific Islanders uh, in North America and, and abroad. And, and I, I'm sure that there's a lot for you to share here, but there was something that, that was in this chapter that I found absolutely fascinating and, and was not duplicated in, in the other chapters, and that is high net worth Asian philanthropists gave 12% of their wealth highest in the world. Um, what is unique about the Asian culture that makes it so philanthropic, and is it across the culture, or is it as you gain wealth, you're more philanthropic? I think this is a good time to interject very quickly that when we look at cultures broadly, we can never forget 
that our individual donor groups or our donors that we go to one more layer. If this is a Mexican group, what are some of the roots? What are some of the habits? Same thing with Asian cultures. When we're trying to compare Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Pacific Islanders, just to name four very Very quickly, different cultures. Very different cultures. Uh, very different cultures. And uh, I don't know whether it is economic progress or certain factors in the particular country that have developed maybe an ability to give more. Now, we also should interject that we know from research that people in the lowest third of the economic strata pretty much across the world are also giving. I've seen some great generosity from those who are in what we would call the low economic strata. Mm -hmm. So it stands to reason that countries that have been very progressive, perhaps not as uh, not so much political strife, are naturally going to have more resources, but also being able to focus more on the generosity factor. I know when I've done work several times training, especially in Japan, there are some roots there that go way back, but they also have seen prosperity, and these all work together as pieces of a puzzle, really. And when you look at some of the strife in countries of Africa, my brother lived in Africa for 22 years, and seeing the change going from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, that was a little disruptive. Uh, now we're seeing people's generosity. I recently did training in Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. and we're seeing that emerge, but in a more culturally appropriate mm -hmm. rather than an imposed culture. Imposed, imposing another culture. Yeah, it had uh, its yeah. good parts, right. of course. But I think that uh, could be one of the answers to what you just asked. There's, a, there's um, uh, something that, that I've certainly heard, um, and you bring up in your chapter uh, Nina uh, Agarwal um, in an article in Advancing Philanthropy raised um, sort of a, a misconception, I gather, um, that uh, even though Asians make up a small percentage of the U.S. population, why is it important to cultivate them as donors when um, one of the, the sort of, I don't know, common themes that, that people may feel about Asians is that Asians, uh, and this is quoting this article, not quoting you, uh, quoting this article in Advancing Philanthropy, Asians overwhelmingly give just to their families. Why even bother approaching them for unrelated causes? And she points out in this article, it's a misconception that needs to be overturned and needs to be rethought. What can we learn in your chapter and what have you learned about Asian cultures that say that is a misconception and needs to be overturned? One of my friends, a Japanese-American, pointed out to me that while it is universally true, and we can find a number of these characteristics that we could actually say, well, that's in that culture, that's in that one, but what we're looking for is where is it more important in this culture than maybe in this culture. And one of the factors that she brought up was that serve before you ask. And sometimes, unwittingly, our organizations, our nonprofits, and you're a nonprofit coach, you know that. Right. We sometimes don't think about providing the service, which is why this book is also written for leaders, not just fundraisers. Right. And one of the big points that she said is business as usual. We need to remember which cultures need more customizing, more respect for their differences than others. Let's back up just quickly to the Hispanic culture. I remember going up to one person who was in a class of mine whose name was Martinez, and I spoke to him in Spanish because I thought it would be fun. He said, laugh, and he said, I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> so, but in the Asian cultures, perhaps it's sticking more to the roots of what has shaped their giving and this family concept, as I mentioned, Cambodians mm -hmm. in the Thai refugee camp, right. is perhaps more of a factor. So if we haven't included them on boards, which mm -hmm. is a perennial topic, right. in our service areas, perhaps going into the community, mm -hmm. getting leadership involved, this is true mm -hmm. also of the Hispanic culture, mm -hmm. 
uh, they're not as likely to give to what we very loosely term mainstream. That, of course, brings up a whole different factor. Sure. Our but that's across the board, right? I mean, if if uh, if if your organization only caters to majority whites, if your board is majority whites, if your staff is majority whites. Why are you coming and asking me for money only because I have money, but you haven't shown that you actually have an interest in my community and the things that matter to me? And I, I can imagine that that, that is a common a common theme. Uh, continuing to uh, to move along here, uh, absolutely fascinating. I mean, certainly it's a you know a, a topic uh, for our days here. But I found it fascinating that you wrote about Arab American philanthropy. Uh, it's characterized largely by an informal approach where giving is often based on emotion, not on financial, tax, or estate planning. Gifts go primarily to family or directly to others in need, to churches or mosques, uh, or in the form of remittances. So so this sort of, uh, is, is this, and I, I don't think you necessarily made this case, but I'm almost wondering, am I, is this meant to read that the Arab culture prefers to sort of be anti-mainstream and that they, they, they purposely want to not necessarily be giving to big box charities and giving in what might be considered sort of Anglo-Western ways, um, but that they have their own form of philanthropy and that, that, that understanding that isn't necessarily going to open, open that philanthropy up to big box sort of Anglo-Western um, uh, philanthropy, but should be celebrated for what it is. Is, is that a, a proper read or not quite? I, I think to a great extent it is. We need to remember that with any donor, especially as our donor intelligence has improved over time, people are much more aware of asking the right questions. One of the perennial and universal questions is, how does that affect me? Mm -hmm. And of course, with some of the biases. When you when you say that, you mean the mission, maybe the mission of the charity. How is that affecting or me what as the they donor? Do. Right. How does okay. the, how does that help me? Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is an age-old question. But as more and more, let's just say Arab Americans have become part of the uh, let's say second generation, for example, mm -hmm. part of the traditional American culture without losing their own roots, this, uh, I believe, is a factor that how much have we been included? How does this library project affect me if I can't find a section in Arabic? So should I give to this library re renovation? Uh, instead, my mosque has perhaps a collection of materials. The same can be said about a lot of religions, like I live right near a Buddhist temple. And how does giving to that versus giving to the local community center when the Buddhist temple is already having programs that affect us? I think that's part of the element that we need to remember. And harking way back to when you and I just started, I said it's a matter of inclusivity. Not opportunism, but inclusivity. People like to be part of a winning cause, but as, at the same time, how does it affect me? Hmm. Uh, and, and is that, it, I, I gather that's universal. I, I see that in your book throughout. But um, I guess what I'm, I'm asking is, is part of that even stronger in the Arab American community? Does, does it, does it, is it a purposefully meant to have that be a more insular philanthropy, I guess, than necessarily an integrated philanthropy? Part of that, I think I could answer by saying, when I first started working on this topic uh, more than two decades ago with workshops, research, speaking on it, the, all those uh, aspects, I could hardly find anything on mm -hmm. Arab American mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Arab roots of giving, mm -hmm. and yet we know how strong they are. Right. A former grad student of mine who works in Turkey, now, Turkey is always up for grabs what continent right, does right. it belong to, but let's just uh, look at the Muslim aspect. Uh, they had foundations that were giving way back in the Sultan's days. Mm -hmm. So looking at some of those traditions... So it's clearly you know, part of the culture. Exactly. Yeah. So I think partly it's because the, the uh, research and the knowledge about Arab-American giving and then put together some of the cataclysmic events we've had, 
some of that has inhibited our full understanding, but also reaching out mm -hmm. to the populations that make up that broad group. Moving on to Jewish philanthropy, which I think, you know, in, in many ways, maybe we know more about that because of an integration of, of cultures, but may mirror, it seems to me, um, what's happening in the uh, Arab uh, philanthropy culture in that Jewish philanthropy can be very insular, but can also be integrated. Uh, just one point going back, when we look at the at Islam and some of the tenets, they probably have some of the strongest, because religion has right. been a big part of this, sure. uh, mandates for giving. Mm -hmm. Now, when we move to the Jewish populations, you have the Jewish by culture or birth or by faith or mm -hmm. both, mm -hmm. and they also have some very strong mandates for giving, Whereas, let's take some of the Protestant religions, it's not as strong a mandate, it's more of a please do or a suggestion. So I think that also has developed some, if I could loosely use the word insularity, in both the uh, Arab and the Jewish cultures, those strong traditions of faith, whether they adhere to them strongly or not, they're there. Mm -hmm. And also giving uh, Jewish populations that are now much more, especially younger, uh, donors are giving across borders. Mm -hmm. We used to have the United Jewish Appeal, very strongly for Jewish causes. Now it's spreading out. It's spreading and I the suspect world. the more we research the Arab world, we'll see the same see thing. The same, that's what I thought, is that, that it may, we may not know as much about it, but it probably does look very similar. Um, I think, you know, interesting to the Jewish culture is this um, sort of hierarchy of, of philanthropy, uh, very you know, a lot of thought obviously has been given into this. That sort of the, the lowest moral value of, of giving would be one who gives unwillingly. Um, the highest value of, of uh, or moral value uh, to giving the highest form of charity is to strengthen the hand of the person in need by giving a loan or by joining him or her in partnership or offering training so that that person in need may become self-sufficient in overcoming poverty. So, you know, teach a man to fish, sort, right. of, sort, of a, sort of the seen as the highest form of philanthropy. So that's obviously a very uh, well-thought-out cultural approach to philanthropy when you have step-by-step approaches as to what is the, 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 best, um, the best type of. So Jewish philanthropy, the note that I made to myself, and I'll just, again, I'm watching the time here. The note that I made to myself coming away from your chapter is that Jewish philanthropy is very serious business. It dates back to biblical times. And while much of the world believes in God or a God, that was possibly the closest. The closest, yeah. right. Moving on to European philanthropy, uh, I'm just, I, this is, this is, I think from, from a Western tradition, um, is, is where philanthropy found its roots into America. Um, how much of American philanthropy finds its roots in European philanthropy, and how different is European philanthropy? Well, if we go back to the first settlers of America, or the first pilgrims, or the pioneers, or whomever, they were mostly from Europe and brought those traditions with them. Now, what we do find is very interesting is what the Soviet Union, the changes in the political atmosphere in Europe. Let's just take my country of Estonia. Uh, Pre-war, World War II, it was really not part of a culture to give to a stranger. Uh, Estonians are very independent and uh, self-motivated. And then the Soviet period of about 50 years changed the dynamic. And then post-Soviet times, and I was very fortunate to be funded to go over there in the early years of freedom uh, to help them develop some of the nonprofit concepts as well as organizations. And the idea, okay, we need to work together to build up the country. We don't want government interference. Mm -hmm. Remember mm -hmm. what it meant. And I think so. You don't want to give away the independence of philanthropy exactly. by making it a government relation. And so, when it came to America, remember why many people came to America? Some of those same attitudes came with them. 
we're self-reliant, but we've got to work together to build up this new world, this new society. Well, let's 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 kind of marry into because I I think what you're saying here, and certainly your book makes a case that European philanthropy and American philanthropy are very tied to each other. One of the the, the topics that I took away is certainly uh, Alexa de Tocqueville's uh, work on associations and. That that's sort of the roots of uh, of uh, American philanthropy. Um, of course, that was uh, written in 1831. And you you say in your book, associations first formed spontaneously by people with similar interests and goals who began to establish uh, that began to be established by public policy. Associations became legal entities and proliferated greatly until the middle of the 19th century. There was considerable concern that the individual would be uh, subsumed into the faceless class of people. Uh, for example, the unemployed, the hungry, and the and the homeless. Um, so, did the 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 movement towards association counter the desire to be an individual? I don't think so. I think inherently regardless of our personality type, whether it's introversion or extroversion, we need a context of people. Some need it more than others. Mm -hmm. And I think it was natural uh, outgrowth of having to work together, whether in a village, whether as a pioneer troop going out west, this matter of, okay, I'm still an individual, which I will have to say North America has been very good at fostering that. And I speak as an immigrant and refugee, at the same time, the, the realizing the need to work together for certain goals, uh, the least of which was not, was I said that wrong, uh, survival was probably one of the most important ones. The idea of working together, coming together, like-minded people. And uh, we did So it forced always, us to work, yes. work, work together. Uh, again, be mindful of, of time. <laughs> I'm just very curious, because there are a couple of concepts that I still want to cover here. Um, how did America become, arguably, um, the uh, strongest philanthropic culture on the planet? Well, I think that's a matter of perspective. I, I'm talking yeah. just in sheer dollars, so whether or not you agree with how it's being managed in sheer dollars, um, more money is given in the United States than anywhere else on the planet. Um, how did America get to that? And it seems sustainable over certainly 50 years of uh, giving USA report. Well, I think there are two factors, and one of them builds into what my book talks about. One is that America has stood for freedom. America is great, and it does stand for freedom that sometimes we don't always appreciate or recognize unless we have the perspective of other cultures and countries. So I think the freedom to give where we want to but I think the other thing, this is almost going full circle to what we're talking about, is the richness of the cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't always record everything with the IRS standards. Right. And when we put that into the mix, it's the giving society that the freedom that America stands for, and I get pretty impassioned about that because I am grateful to be in America. I'm very Estonian too, and I grew up with. But isn't that is, people, is, isn't but that statement right there the richness of the American philanthropic experiences, that it's actually an immigrant philanthropic experience that comes together from all these cultures that you've spoken of, come together in America and only become richer um, when they're here together. Now I, the reason that I was rushing along, we only have seven minutes left, <laughs> um, is because I did not want to miss sort of you know, what what almost feels like the capstone to the book and and one of the I think the most important reasons to own and have this book, and and that is what you call the culturally proficient professional and nonprofit, um, and it's brilliant. And people need to read this. Please share with my listeners what what is that concept that you, which I think is so important. I think first of all we need to consider that culture is to a group as personality is to a person. There are some tangible evidences and then there are the intangible. And we, as nonprofit leaders and fundraisers, we're the ones that need to create, first of all, an awareness, then an interest in what are these differences, moving all the way up to proficiency. This involves a lot of what we do, how we speak, I was uh, working with a colleague in another country, 
and she was it was in English and it was being translated and she said well whatever floats your boat and it was so amusing because she was the one speaking and it was so amusing to watch the puzzle look on the faces of the people so that's point number one is their language use uh, don't give me a ballpark figure you know the people don't relate to that one is understanding even the matter of time. Mm -hmm. When I worked in Thailand, people are accustomed to silences. In the American overall culture, we don't tolerate silences. Another factor is our body language, even the distance between people. A lot of this is fun because you learn to maneuver in your particular comfort zone, but also moving out of that comfort zone. Here's a cliche, think outside the box. Mm -hmm. It keeps us from having stagnant minds, frankly. Mm -hmm. But understanding what are some of those, and then, of course, going to the top level, which is what the book is about, understanding maybe the tip of the iceberg, what do we notice, and then digging, yeah, then digging deeper to how do we, without losing who we are, you know, Alexander Pope said, know thyself to thine own self be true. Well, if he lived today, he probably would have added a few phrases to that and said, while remaining true to yourself, add these layers that give you not just proficiency, but it's interesting, it's exciting mm -hmm. to understand those differences, especially when it comes to common good. Well, the, 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 the world is an exciting place, and when you don't sh uh, close yourself off, to the richness of the cultures around the world, you become richer. Um, so in the final moments that we have, one of the concepts that you brought up is one that is growing to be near and dear to Calf America's uh, heart, and that is the uh, notion of diaspora giving. And you say money sent to the country of origin or back home is a significant portion of generosity practiced by immigrant groups, which is what we were talking about, as has been discussed uh, previously in this book. It is actually the second largest flow of funds to developing countries only exceeded by international aid. Um, that is significant, and I'm just in a couple of moments going to share. So uh, the Rockefeller Foundation funded an initiative at the Aspen Institute to start what became known as the Diaspora Investment Alliance. And the whole focus there was to create uh, an online platform for various diaspora groups where they could give in a tax-effective way back to their homeland uh, to pre-vetted charities and projects that they could know would make a difference in their homeland. Um, when the Aspen Institute had fully developed that program, they looked around for where could that be housed and where could that appropriately be administered, and they chose CAF America. Uh, so CAF America is now the home of the Diaspora Investment Alliance. Uh, we, this happened just a few months ago, uh, so we're working on all the details, and we expect over the summer and in the fall, um, various diaspora investment platforms will be launched, and we think that uh, it will most likely start where the energy is greatest right now is possibly um, Bangladesh, uh, Kenya, uh, Philippines, India, um, are some of the countries that we're in diaspora groups that we're working with right now, and of course it can go as broadly as possible. Three minutes left. Um, diaspora giving and understanding cultures and philanthropy seems to tie all of this together. This is your cl closing statement. Three minutes. Take us out to the end. If I can have half a minute, let's not forget <laughs> Native Americans. Right. And uh, one of the terms, for example, Indian giver, which we see as derogatory, was actually lauding the generosity that was quite common among all the different tribes. We forget how many tribes there were. And the factors of Native American giving, I think we, we can't overlook that because their generosity even to those Europeans who came over. Well, one thing I would like to call attention to is that with the help of a webmaster and many other people, I have a website, actually the title of the book, Diversity and Philanthropy, and here other people, including yourself, now you're on air with that promise, are going to write columns. And I also, on every, like every so many weeks, I'm going to have references. For example, AFP has a wonderful piece on diversity and inclusivity. I'm going to be referencing those on the website. So this is a matter of continuing the topic because it's never finished. Our world changes, type of people who come over, 
giving from the cultures they bring over. And so it's a never-ending topic. So I feel like my work is just the next step to further understanding and practice. Absolutely. A brilliant book, Diversity nice. and Philanthropy, Expanding the Circle of Giving by Dr. Lilia Wagner. Uh, don't forget, next week here on The Nonprofit Coach, we will be live uh, Tuesday, 12 noon Eastern. Dr. Wagner. Lilia, thank you so much for being my guest. And thank you for coming in and giving me the opportunity to have you right here in the studio with me. And thank you for having me. You can tell I'm passionate about the topic. Absolutely. And a terrific book. Go out and get it. You can find it on Amazon. Remember our You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.